of how early it was, but the earliest remembrances that I have was that there was this connection with the church, connection with God. It wasn't just church, though. It was also lived out in our home because uh, our home and our home, our parent, my parents uh, pray and, and, and were leaders in the church. They were people who, who would always be involved and would involve us. And we really never had a choice growing up about church. You know, I mean, from the time I was a child to the time I was a teenager and left the house, um, you went to church. And I think I turned out decent, you know. Uh, my kids didn't have a choice either. Uh, you know, I know nowadays we have this kind of deal like, well, you know, my child doesn't really want to go. Well, I'm sorry, dude. Who's going to be the parent in regard to this? Uh, and I say that today with love and because let me share with you something. Uh, we will see today in God's word that we are only one generation away, only one generation away from being disconnected with God. It does not take long. And if we are not careful, we will find our, the next generation, our children and their children, being totally disconnected with God. Because we see that in God's word here this morning. We're in chapter 8 of the story. And in chapter 8 of the story, it deals with, today we're going to deal with a whole, a whole book called the book of Judges. Last week we dealt with the whole book of Joshua, you know. And I'm going like, wow, this is a lot of cover in one week. So we're just kind of like hitting the, the highlights of it. And hopefully you've read it already. And if you haven't, I encourage you to read chapter 8 this week, which deals with a lot of the, the book of Judges, a lot of different things going on there. Uh, if you remember last week and talk about Joshua, Joshua had been a leader after Moses and had, had taken the people into the promised land. They had begun to conquer the promised land and was living there. Uh, but it wasn't. And so it, we begin Judges kind of talking about that. And it's Judges chapter 2, verse 7, it says, The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. But then in verse 10 it says this, After that, the whole generation had been gathered up to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. It only took one generation of disconnect from being a follower of God for one generation to begin to follow other gods. Uh, Israel spent the next 400 years, this is the period of the judges, the next 400 years after Joshua, the next 400 years was this period of darkness, this period of ups and downs, of upheavals, and, 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 and people just living kind of their lives with disconnected from God in so many different ways. It was a cycle of disobedience, of punishment, of repentance, and then deliverance. God did this over and over and over over the next 400 years. It's recorded in Scripture in the Old Testament in the book called Judges. Um, and really, as I shared already, it points out the danger of not teaching our children firmly the priority of a relationship with God. Because remember back in Joshua when we began last week, if you were here, Joshua 1.8, when after God had told Joshua to be strong and courageous, then he said, how, does, how do you do that? Well, one of the key ways in verse 8 of chapter 1 of Joshua is this. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate it on day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. One generation before they heard this from God, they followed this plan, and they were prosperous and successful. They were, they were connected with God in a strong way. 
But as we read just, just after that there, uh, in, in just the next few verses, it says, the next, it says, they forsook the Lord, the Lord of their, God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshiped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the asterisks. That asterisks were simply poles they put up to honor certain gods that were out there. They, they honored, they, they worshiped all kinds of bizarre things. And it kind of made me to think about this. So often, you know, what happened is, is God was still there. God was still a part of their culture, but he was just a part of it. He wasn't a central part of it. And so often we have a choice to make in our culture, and they had a choice to make that back then. And, and the choice was between, am I going to be a follower of God, somebody who closely aligns, or am I just going to be a fan of God? You can be a fan of God. Yeah, God, I like you. Go God. And it becomes like a part of your life. And that's what they did sometimes in that culture. But they they weren't followers of God. So this whole new generation began to worship pagan gods. Until finally God used these pagan nations to punish them. And God would punish them by allowing them to be oppressed by one of the neighboring tribal nations. And they would, and then what would happen is this, they would be oppressed and then they would cry out to God in repentance and beg for deliverance and and we read in, in Judges chapter 2, verses 16 and through 19, it says this is what happened then. This is how God began to work in their lives. Then the Lord raised up judges. Now, when you think of the word judge, what do you think? I know what you're thinking, George. Okay, George is a lawyer. Okay. Uh, he works, he's in front of George, uh, judges all the time. But this is not the same person that we think of when we think of a judge. Judge was kind of like a political, military, and sometimes spiritual leader all combined into one in different ingredients. Different ones were, sometimes they, they were political, sometimes they were military, sometimes they were spiritual, sometimes they were all three at the same time. But that's what a judge was in this day. It was somebody who rose up because of their leadership. So the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders and that they would not listen to their judges but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. So there was this period of time in here where there was uh, some light during some of the times of the judges when the judge would, uh, would be raised up and God would begin to save them out of the hands of their enemies. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those oppressed, of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But then it says this, but when the judge died, the people returned to their ways, even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. And we see in the book of Judges this cycle, the cycle of, of, of people turning away from God and, and going through this period of oppression, and then repentance, and then deliverance. And it continued to happen many, many times over this 400 years. And, and there were 12 judges, 11 men and one woman, during this period of time that was raised up by God. Now, we're, we don't have time to cover all those today, okay? I know that. So I chose three. The three people, the three judges you probably already have heard of before. Uh, some of the other ones you may not have heard of, like Ehud. I don't, you know, it's not like your normal judge you hear but anyway i want to talk about three judges and, and, and the reason i want to talk about these three is because not just to give you information but to tell you this is how god can raise up people and how god can use you because god takes as we've seen already the most unlikely people and uses them in leadership and and so he did that during the period of the judges the, the first person i want to talk about is deborah probably the most unlikely of all judges during that period of time uh, we will call Deborah a woman of influence. And she's in Judges chapter 4 and 5. And it tells her story. 
Now, in the Old Testament, I mean, I think most of you know this, but in the Old Testament, it was rare to find a woman who was called a prophet, first of all. She was, uh, some, or even in being in leadership, it was just a cultural thing that, that women were in leaders. But this lady, Deborah, obviously was a, a spiritual and, and powerful force in her, in her, in her uh, nation with her people. And she was someone who spoke on behalf of God. And, and she's a, a woman in a man's world, but God used her to accomplish his will in, in Israel. Uh, it reminded me, you know, about how sometimes we underestimate the power of women. Um, the story I heard one time of a CEO and his wife who were on a trip. And as they were on this trip, uh, driving down the road, uh, they decided to stop. This, the CEO was a very wealthy, you know, CEO of a major company. And um, they stopped at this gas station, and he wanted something to snack to eat. So he went into the gas station to to uh, get him a snack, and his wife was in the car. And when he got back, she was out in the, in the parking lot next to the car having this animated conversation with the gas station attendant. That was in the days when they actually were gas station attendants, okay? But, uh, and, you know, she was having this animated conversation, and she was just, just like, real friendly with this gas station attendant, the CEO's wife. And, and as she continued to talk, he finally, he just kind of looked at her kind of strange, got back in the car, sat there. She continued to talk to this guy, finally calls him by name, gets back in the car, and he didn't really, the CEO didn't really know what to say. And so they're driving down the road for a while, and, and the uh, uh, CEO looks at his wife and he says, uh, what was that all about? And she goes, well, that was the strangest thing. She said, that was the guy that I was engaged to before I knew you. And I haven't seen him in all these years. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you know, we, we, we kind of come and get to see each other again after all these years. And she said, so he didn't speak for a while. He didn't know what to say, you know. And he finally kind of smugly says to her, he says, well, just think what would have happened if you'd have married him. You'd have been married to a gas station attendant. And she looks at him very clearly, and she looks at him and says, oh, no, you don't understand. If he'd have married me, he would be the CEO. (laughs) Sometimes we underestimate the power and influence of women. Now, some of you women are thinking, like, preach preach on. But, you know, that's... Just a story. I don't know if it's true or not. Uh, <laughs> but Deborah had incredible influence, and we read this in Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. It says this. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud, I told you about him, was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Cana, who reigned in Hazor. Then it tells about this. And then Sisera, the commander of, of his army, of the commander of uh, Jabin's army, had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. And so after doing this, they cried out to the Lord. This is the cycle once again repeated. And then it says this. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Philippadoth, was leading Israel at the time. She was already in, in leading the people. She had risen to prominence. That's kind of how the judges happened. It wasn't like an election or it wasn't like anybody. It just people rose up to, and you know, in a vacuum when there's no leaders, leaders rise up. They do. And so what, this is what had happened. And she had become a person who was well, uh, you know, well known. She was a person who was known as a, as a spiritual leader. She was considered a prophet. Doesn't mean that she foretold the future. It means that she was spoke for God. That's what she did. And then we see her in chapter four, verse 14, talking to her military commander. She wasn't necessarily the military commander, but she was a leader. And in verse 14, it says, then Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down uh, Mount Tabor and with 10,000 men following him. Now, 
we read this, and if you read this story, it seems for some reason that Barak is reluctant to go into battle. He doesn't really want to go. But Deborah points out to him that God has already promised victory. And that, then she, if you read the whole thing, if you read this, uh, she also points out that a woman would be the key to the victory. I thought it was interesting because if you read that, who do you think that's going to be, what woman's going to be? Deborah. Yeah, it makes sense. It's going to be Deborah. No. Because you read a little further and, and, and uh, she, uh, and, and Barak finally goes into battle against Sisera. And they're in battle and the battle is waging on and, and Barak and his guys are uh, overcoming Sisera and his guys. And we see Sisera running off and trying to hide. In verse 17 it says this, Sisera meanwhile fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin king of Hazor and the family of Heber the Kenite. And if you want to read further, you can read. I think it's a great story. It's it's kind of a bloody story. It's a pretty gross story, but the story goes that basically what happened in jail. Jail, uh, a jail. Or Cicero goes to the tent of jail. This this lady, and it says that basically what it is that he goes in. He's beat from battle. He's just uh, you know he's just tired. He's trying to hide. And so what he does, jail in her sweet you know innocence, she offers him some milk, some warm milk. Come over here. Sister and laying on this cot. Here, let me give you a snuggie. <laughs> kind of what happened, but not exactly. You know, and so he falls, says he falls into a deep sleep. And you know what it says that JL did? She takes a pent, a, a, a tent peg and a hammer and hammers it through his temple into the ground. What a wonderful lady. And so Barak shows up looking for Sisera, and, and Jael and, and Jael goes, "I know where he is. He's in my tent. Really? Yeah. Let's go get him. No, he's already dead. I killed him." And Jael becomes the heroine, heroine of the of the battle. She she finalizes the battle victory because she takes out the commanding general of that group. I'm always wondering when I thought about this. <clears throat> I wonder if Jael's husband Heber. Uh, Heber probably, how he treated her after that episode. I wonder if he slept with his eyes open. Or he never ate, drank warm milk right before bed. Or I don't know what the deal is, but I'm sure he treated her with a lot more respect, you know, after this episode here in Scripture. But the thing is, is we see here this story, the story of how God delivers and uses unlikely people once again to deliver his people during this time. But, as we all know, as we all know, and we can read this, that... That wasn't enough for the people to stay close to God. It only took just a slight period later. They're back doing their thing. It says even worse than the group before. They forget God. They don't stay in God's word. They don't stay close to God. It only took one generation again, and they're, and they're back doing their thing, you know, just doing everything opposed to God. And so God uses several other judges and raises them up. And one down the road is another unlikely hero, and his name is Gideon. We'll call Gideon a man of courage. Now, you may have heard lessons or stories on Gideon before. You may not have heard him called a man of courage. But I would call him that because when we talked about courage, remember last week we talked about courage because God told Joshua to be courageous and strong. We said courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is moving forward in spite of your fears. And that's what we see Gideon doing. And it says for seven years Israel had been struggling through a period of oppression. 
The Midianites, the Malachites, were barbarians who destroyed everything in its path, and they were they were just wiping out the land. And and so all the crops, you know, I mean, you know they try to grow crops, and and here what what happens is is the Midianites come through and just basically steal everything, and destroy anything else they don't steal. And that was what was going on here, and it was going through this period of oppression. And when God first appeared to Gideon, we see in chapter 6 of Judges, uh, this verse, verse 11, these words. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite. It's kind of hard. Some of these old, you don't have to memorize this, by the way, okay? Uh, these words are kind of hard. Where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. That's just trying to, strange. I don't know about threshing wheat, but normally you don't do it in a wine press. But wine press, if I understand, in that culture was kind of like a hole in the ground type place. It was kind of a place down. It was kind of hidden a little bit. It says he did it to keep it from the Midianites. Now, I don't think necessarily, some people will say that he was doing it because he was a coward. I think he was practical. Because the issue is, is he knew if he left the, the, the wheat out there in the open, the Midianites would take it. But what he did is he took the stuff and he put it down in this wine press that was threshing it down there so he could keep it from being stolen or, or destroyed by the Midianites. And then verse 12, it says this, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, here's a guy in in a hole threshing wheat. He's practical, but I wouldn't consider him a mighty warrior at this point. So what's the point? Well, see, Gideon was a farmer who was attempting to save his crop. But what God was doing, he was encouraging Gideon. He saw potential in Gideon to lead the people at this point in time. And then at verse 13, this is what, uh, uh, how Gideon's response is. Gideon says, pardon me, my Lord. Very polite. Very polite. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Why, uh, where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. And then verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Once again, God chooses the least likely of all people to be the leader in this time, the guy who's the smallest tribe. And he says, you know, he's, he's the least of the tribe. I mean, of all the people in the tribe, why not choose one of my brothers or somebody else? There's all these other better choices out there. But God says, no, I've chosen you, Gideon, to do this. And he tested his courage by asking him to do something before he goes out into battle. He wants to see how battle-ready he is. Is he ready to stand up to something? And I thought it was an interesting test that he does. Because in verse 25, this is what God says to Gideon to kind of test him to say, are you going to stand with me or are you going to do your own thing? Are you going to do like everybody else does and follow Baals and, and, and worship other gods? Are you going to be a fan of me or are you going to be a follower? What are you going to do? And the test is this. It says this. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of it, this height, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. What? He's asking him, to oppose his family's worship of false gods. He say, you know, sometimes God, sometimes as believers, what we have to do is we might have to make waves in our family if they're going to oppose to God. 
I mean, I don't know if any of you, you know, I've talked to many people here at Great Oaks, and some of you come from, many of you, most of you, come from different backgrounds. Uh, I mean, other than evangelical Christians. Some of you did, but a lot of you come from a Catholic background, Lutheran background, Presbyterian background, whatever it might be. And sometimes your family has given you grief over that because you can be considered, you know, a traitor to your faith. And so the issue is, is the thing is, is God is telling, telling, and those are, you know, I would not consider like Baal worship here. But the thing is, is that he's saying that God said to him, he says, you need to take a stand for the God that you believe in. Are you going to be a follower or going to be a fan? So God tests him in that. It's his first test before he sends him out to battle. And then we read the next few verses in Scripture, and I'm not going to read all of it, just going to tell you what happens. But God told Gideon to go out and fight the Midianites, a huge army. And Gideon called all of his men together. And he had, it says in Scripture, he had 32,000 men. Sounds like a pretty good army, right? I mean, I feel pretty confident with an army of 32,000 men. But then in Judges 7, uh, the Lord says to Gideon, you have too many men. <laughs> it's going like, What? I mean, isn't that the strategy? You have a whole bunch of people to fight somebody who's a little bit, you know, uh, at least make it as equal as possible. And God says, well, I cannot deliver Midian into your hands because Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. He's going like, I want to prove to you that it's God, it's not you that's doing this. Once again, we've seen this cycle over and over and over again in Scripture where God sets it up where only it has to be from God. We need to learn that that. In our, in our life. So often we think, well, because of my incredible plans, because of our intellect, or because of our resources, we can do things. But God says, if you're with me, I can do all things through you when you'll just be a follower of me. Listen to me. And so what he does is he, he goes through this, this honing, or this, this process of cutting down the army from 32,000. And the first cut is this. I mean, it's kind of like cutting for a team or something. You know, the first cut is this. He says, tell anybody that uh, trembles with fear to turn back and, and leave Mount Gilead. Go somewhere else. Leave. And, and it says on that day, 22,000 men left. Wow. We're down to 10,000. doesn't, you know, still sounds, you know, like a lot of guys. And then God says, says, oh, there's still too many men. Uh, take them down to the water, and I want to watch, watch watch them drink. And I'll tell you which ones that you're going to pick and which ones you're not going to pick. And he separates them. He says by this, he says, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. You know, the ones who kind of like grab some water and kind of look up, and they're lapping it, you know, like that. It's kind of gross. But anyway, but they're see that what they're doing, they're, they're attentive. They're drinking the water. They're looking around. They're attentive. They know what's going on. They don't, you know, the ones who just stick their face in the water and they can't, you know, if somebody showed up, you know, what would happen? Be a surprise. And so God separates them. So the ones who drank like a dog, <laughs> lapped it up and was attentive, there was only 300 of them, it says. And then verse 7, God says this, the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that that left, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. 32,000, 10,300. Wow. How's that going to work? Especially the fact was that we read in Scripture that Midianites had 135,000 men. That's a lot. Uh, uh, do your math. It's 450 to 1. 450 to 1. The odds do not sound good. 
But it says that that's what happens. Then we read the next few verses and the story goes, and it's one of the great stories in Scripture of how Gideon takes the guys, divides them into three groups of a 100 men, puts them around the camp in the hillside around them with a pot, with a, with a lantern or with a torch inside and, and with a horn. And they go, that's what they go to battle with. And they're around the camp at night and, and, and as they, they all break their pots and they start blowing their horns and yelling and screaming and the Midianites, it says, are terrified. These guys that have been fighting battles are terrified and thinking that the hills are filled with, with all the Israelites. And what they do, they start, in the darkness, they start fighting themselves and they kill themselves. And then the Israelites go and finish off the few that's left. And they have the victory. And it says after that, Israel enjoyed a time of peace. Once again, this cycle of turning away from God, of being oppressed, of repenting, and the deliverance. See, God can do anything against any kind of odds. And Gideon teaches us to have courage when God, with, with God on our side. He was one of the, he was another one of the leaders. And then probably the most famous of all the judges is the guy that you probably have heard off more about. He's probably the most flawed of all the judges as well. His name was Samson. Samson, I call him a flawed leader. Now Samson was far from perfect, but God still used him. That's what's amazing sometimes. I don't know if you've noticed in scripture and we haven't gotten there yet. We're getting ready to go there because we're talking about now judges and kings. This week's judges and the next several weeks kings. Okay, so I don't know how we, it's not really balanced, okay, in regard to how much time we're going to spend. But as God uses kings, he doesn't use perfect people. He uses imperfect people once again to be the leaders of his people, but people who follow him in, in, in an imperfect way. And Samson was one of those. Samson shows us that God can do mighty things with just one man. In fact, in fact almost in spite of one man. Because the thing is this, is that uh, Samson was raised to be a Nazarite. That meant that he had these vows that he was to take, that all of his life he was to neither touch alcohol, he was never to have his hair cut, or he was never to eat anything unclean. He kept one of those. The haircut thing. He didn't cut it himself. He had it cut later for him. But the issue was, and, and he had some other issues too. He had some, he was a huge womanizer. Oh my gosh, the guy had a real issue. And the thing was, is that he, he had all these problems. First of all, he wants to marry a Philistine woman and it was inappropriate. You know, one of the things when I was a youth pastor, I said, tell kids, I said, you know, one of the things the Bible talks about is do not be unequally yoked. That means do not marry someone who has different value system than you. If you're a Christian, you need to marry somebody who's a Christian. So their value system will stay the same because you will be pulled apart in so many different directions. And so that's one of the things they taught here. And so he, he wanted to do this. His parents tried to talk him out of it, and he said no. And it, all it did was lead him to trouble. You can read the story. It's just trouble after trouble after trouble because of his desire to have this woman. And then we read through the life of Samson and had nothing but a series of bad relationships and strong-willed decisions. He was just like a bull in a china shop, almost literally. And at the end of his life, Samson... Uh, you know, married this woman named Delilah, Samson and Delilah. And Delilah, I mean, you know, if you read that story, if you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it. Because the story is so bizarre because Delilah, he's married to Delilah and Delilah keeps begging him and saying, hey, let me know the, 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 the secret of your strength. And, and, and she just does dumb and he does it. It says he lies to her a few times and she lets people in to try to overcome him. And he keeps going back and you're going like, how dumb can somebody be? 
I don't know if you thought, I think that when I think about that, you know, you know, and, and I'm sure my wife, when she's read that, how dumb could a guy be? And, you know, I'm just going, just how guys are, some of us are doomed. I mean, he just kept doing this stupid thing, you know, all, maybe he's blinded by love. I don't know what the deal was. But the issue is he keeps doing this, and finally we read the story where he finally gives in and says, you know, the strength, the, the, the secret of my strength is my hair. And so we read the story, you know, that his hair was cut, and, and because of that, his God, God's strength is removed from him. And he's captured, and he's, his eyes are poked out. I'm mean, told this is a brutal time in the life of, of the Israelites. And he's, and he's finally, he's, he's captured and he's, he's chained inside of a, a pagan temple. And, and as he's there, he asks God for one mighty act, one final act to vindicate himself. To God, please help me to do something. And it says in Judges chapter 16, verse 27 and 30, it says, Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. I don't know what he was doing. You know, he's blind, he's chained. I don't, you know, what do you do? And it says, Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get the revenge of the Philistines for my two eyes. It says, Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all of his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. As flawed as Samson was during his period, he was one of the leaders of his people, and he kept the people. Uh, he, he, they went through a period where they they kind of returned to God, and God kind of delivered them during that period of time. Another judge, flawed, imperfect, and throughout the book of Judges, the same cycle is repeated: disobedience, punishment, repentance, deliverance. There's actually seven cycles where we see, uh, and each one of them begins with the same phrase. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. I think you could relate to this, what I'm talking about. You know, you go to bed at night, right, right when you go to bed, you, and you're in a bright room and you have lights on and you turn the lights off. How, how, how well do you see right after that? Not very well. You know, you kind of like it's in darkness. Because you've been in the light. And the lights shine things on and you can see things. But what happens later in the night? Now, some of you younger don't relate to this at all because you don't have any of the issues that us older folks have. But the issue is you have to get up and go to the restroom in the middle of the night, okay? And you've been asleep for a while, and everything's darkened and the room's darkened, and you wake up and you can kind of get around in the darkness, can't you? You get kind of acclimated to the darkness. Darkness is not so scary, not so unfriendly anymore. I mean, I've lived in my house now for, let's see, six years. And even in the dark, I can find my way around because it's become familiar. We adapt to darkness if we stay in the darkness. And that's what the people of Israel did. It only took one generation from the pull away from God, the God that had been the one who had led them for all those years, the God that they had trusted, the God who, who they had learned to depend upon. But they'd adapted themselves to the darkness. And they didn't even realize they were in the darkness. Until things got so bad 
that they turned away. I like what Earl Nightingale says. He says, as you remain the same until the pain of remaining the same becomes greater than the pain of change. I don't know about you, but I don't want to see the next generation turn away from God to live in darkness. To get adapted to it such a way that they don't even realize it's there until it gets so painful that they cry out to God for deliverance. See, we have a choice. We have a choice with our decisions in life. And it's more than just decisions about who we're going to vote for next week or what am I eating for lunch today. It's decisions about how are we going to spend our time and how are we going to influence the next generation, our children and our grandchildren, to live for God. And it's, it's, it's not just what we say, it's what we do. You know, folks, you know, you can say all day, and children know this, you can say all day certain things, but unless you do it, they know you're fake. And so we have a choice. And our choice begins with us. Are we going to make our life such that we will stay connected with God and teach our children what Joshua said, teach them all things so that they can live according to all things and be strong and prosper? Are we going to let them just like, ah, just do what you're... You know, I always think it's the most amazing story. <laughs> years ago, you remember, you remember the Olympics years ago? There was a girl named... There, there was a girl. She's still a girl, I guess. She's a lady now. Her name was Peek, Peekaboo Street. Olympics. Never heard of her? Peekaboo Street. American skier. You know why she got the name Peekaboo? <laughs> thought it was funny. Her parents decided to let the child name, the, name herself. So for a number of years, she went around as, hey, you. Until one day, the little girl says, hey, I want to be called Peekaboo. I mean, I'm not sure about that parenting style. Folks, we have a tremendous responsibility as parents to influence our kids. And we need to do it in a loving, in a caring way. So they won't make mistakes that we've made. And hopefully prosper and be successful in life because they follow God. It's our choice. And we make those choices every day in how we spend our time and our resources. Let's not forget the lesson of the judges. We're only one generation away from being far away from God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.